Welcome, everybody, to the Scripture Chronicles podcast. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan. Joining me today is Corey Howitt once again. Corey, how's it going? It's going great. I'm just stoked to get into a totally new type of literature today. It'll be really fun. Yeah, me as well. So if you are new to the podcast, welcome. Thank you guys all for tuning in. How this podcast works is it is a cumulative podcast where each episode builds on the last one, meaning that as we go through the biblical story, we are bringing out themes consistently from previous episodes, from previous chapters, and from previous books. So if you have the time, it would definitely be beneficial if you went back and listened to the episodes preceding this one. If you don't have too much time, you can at least do the ones in Exodus. And even if you don't have time for that, we are going to give a brief recap at least of what we went over last week and kind of where we are in the story so far. So last week, what we did is we covered Exodus chapters 19 and 20. We actually kind of zoomed in a little bit more than usual and covered a smaller section. And the reason we did that is because Exodus 19 and 20 are particularly important for not only understanding Exodus, but for understanding a whole bunch of the rest of the Bible. I might even say the rest of the Bible. And so what we talked about then in light of Exodus 19 and 20 is that Exodus 19 kind of serves as the mountain, if you pardon the pun, of the book of Exodus, where everything before Exodus 19 is kind of building you up to this point. And then once you get to Exodus 19, everything after Exodus 19 kind of stems from it, meaning that Exodus 19 is the first time we get all of the Israelites to Sinai. And if you'd been listening to the episodes preceding this one, you know from Exodus 3 and on that Sinai was really kind of the short-term goal. We wanted to see the Israelites removed from Egypt and brought to the mountain where they would then go up the mountain and worship God. That was the short-term goal. Long-term goal, obviously, is getting into the land of Canaan. Once we get to Sinai in Exodus 19, we left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, talked a little bit about that, baptism, stuff like that. Into the wilderness, we talked about the Israelites complaining and grumbling against Moses and against this God who had just brought them out of Egypt, thinking that maybe somehow this God has brought them out of Egypt only to kill them. And then finally, we get to the mountain, Exodus 19, high point. We're expecting these guys to go up the mountain, just like was foretold in Exodus 3, that that's our short-term goal. If people get ready, Moses gets them all prepared, having them wash themselves and clean themselves and getting themselves ready as a people that are going to be this people of priests. And then we see that the horn blows, signaling them to come up the mountain, and they're afraid. They're scared. They shake in the camp. Moses brings them before the foot of the mountain, and then they stop there and say, you know what, Moses, maybe maybe you should just go up for us. And so Moses then goes up, and at that point, they are barred from going up the mountain and accessing God's presence. Because they didn't do it when they were supposed to, because they sent Moses up in their place, they are no longer welcome in God's presence. It was a wrong act, and we concluded that last week. And so then we jumped into chapter 20, where Moses gets these 10 words from God. And we talked about how. Not only the 10 words themselves, but kind of the remainder of the differing law codes seem to come about as a result of 
a disobedient action on behalf of the Israelites. So whenever they disobey, they get more law code. And so we brought that idea out based on the work of John Salehammer. Uh, so if you haven't checked him or his work out, recommend that. But the idea then is that because they didn't go up the mountain, we should be bummed as the readers, expe having expected them to go up the mountain. And now we're getting law code. So the 10 words come out. And once again, the end of chapter 20 reiterates the fact that they didn't go up the mountain, that they're barred from God's presence because of it. And that Moses now is the intermediary between Israel and God. And so we're kind of left at that point. And so we're going to be picking up today in 20 subsection B. That's the end of chapter 20. And then we're going to be going through, hopefully, all the way through 24. So we're going to be giving what I call a live commentary on these verses, meaning that this is going to take a little bit of a different sort of approach than maybe previous podcasts have, where we're going to be reading the section and then kind of giving our thoughts in real time. We read through these uh, before the podcast, but now we're going to actually be discussing it with one another as we go through, because this is going to be our first section of kind of in-depth law code. And so we're taking a break in the narrative and we're jumping into kind of a new section of literature, like Corey already said, that is a different type of literature. It's not written in the same way as narrative is written. And so we're going to have to pay special attention to that as we go through it. But that pretty much does it for the recap on my end. Corey, anything you wanted to throw in there before we jump in? Yeah, um, we, we're going to talk a little bit about the name of Yahweh. Um, I think I brought it up like three podcasts ago now about how we really wanted to talk about God's name and why it's not used anymore. And that goes into what we talked about last week. But again, because we're running short, we just wanted to throw it in at the beginning of this episode. Um, but in chapter 20, verse 7, we have this command that says, you shall not take the name of Yahweh in vain. And last week we said it's not about speaking. It's about bearing up. It's about like carrying his name, which all of a sudden it, it makes the hardest command really easy. And it's like, oh, I just don't need to say, oh, my God, and I'm fine. But if we're thinking about bearing his name, it needs to touch every part of our life. But because of that command and because it was misunderstood as I shouldn't speak his name um, in ways that aren't honoring to him. And then that became an um, excuse to no longer say his name at all, which flies right in the face of when God gives his name in Exodus chapter three. He says, this is my name. I am. And you're going to call me this forever. But yet people stop saying Yahweh. Wherever Yahweh appeared in the text, they would start saying the generic term for Lord in Hebrew, which is Adonai. And they never, you know, put vowel markers for Yahweh. So people aren't even necessarily sure how to even properly pronounce the name today. We go with Yahweh. It sounds the best based on, you know, the verb I am to be. And so in this name, Yahweh. It has gone from Yahweh to then being spelt with the Adonai vowel markers. And so, Yahweh, 
essentially. But for a long time, Germany was like the center of Christian thought and tradition. And in Germany, the letter that makes the Y sound is RJ. And their letter that makes the W sound is RV. And so we get this word in English that looks like Jehovah. So if you ever hear the name Jehovah, as the King James has it, that's because of German spelling of a Hebrew word with another Hebrew word's vowel points, right? So how do we get from Yahweh to Jehovah? It's because people stopped saying, people stopped using the holy name of God. And if we're ever, you know, so legalistic where we stop following God's direct words, there's something wrong here, right? But one last thought, the real reason I want to bring this up is because when um, I go over this with some of my groups and talking about Yahweh and how this is his personal name, which he has given us to say forever, people kind of freak out and say, well, why aren't we using that name? Like, what's wrong with us? We got to start saying Yahweh. But we have a name, this name that is above all names. And Yahweh, God the Father, gave that to Jesus. And so now we say Jesus. That's the personal name for God. To say Jesus or Yahweh, we're talking about the same person. The New Testament makes that abundantly clear, especially in the book of Philippians. I kind of paraphrased the passage, but Paul says, God gave Jesus the name that is above all names. So don't freak out that you know you or your church aren't using the personal name Yahweh. Jesus is the personal God. He is God in a body, came to be flesh. So um, I just want to toss all that out there. Um, and there will be a blog on that as well, because it's kind of a lot of just information. But um, the, the main thing, again, I just want to repeat again, we don't need to be freaked out that we're not using that name. I mean, use that name, say it, but we're not in terrible sin as a church because Jesus is our personal God. Now, all that aside, now that's behind us. I can think clearly now as we go forward since we did that part. Um, we're going to get into the end of chapter 20 of Exodus. So this is chapter 20, verse 22 in Exodus. And how we're going to handle this section is we're just going to go and read through these laws. Um, I mentioned last week, the more that we get into the commands of Yahweh, even though they serve as kind of a punishment for Israel's disobedience, they are so beautiful. And we're going to see... God's intention and beauty behind these commands, which are very good commands. But I'm going to go ahead and start reading there. And it says, And Yahweh said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed. Okay, so... Uh, still instead we're doing kind of a live commentary. So these few thoughts about altars here. 
God says, you're going to make me an altar on which you're going to do your sacrifices, which we'll get into in great depth in Leviticus. So if we don't know what burnt offerings and peace offerings are yet, we're going to just at the beginning of the next book. He says, you're going to make it. And in this place where you make it is where I'm going to cause my name to be remembered. So really interesting. We have Yahweh talking about himself, but something not quite himself, because he's not just saying you're going to remember me there. So you're going to remember my name. So Yahweh's name is Yahweh, but it's separate from Yahweh. So a really interesting idea is we're going to see this come up more in this section. So this is the place where his name is going to be remembered. And you're going to make it of stone, but not of hewn stone. If you're like me, you don't know what hewn means. But this word, English and Hebrew, both mean essentially that it's a cut stone. So don't use a stone in which you people use your tools to cut. Right? And he gives a little explanation for why. Because... If you wield your tool on it, you profane it, which is really interesting. And I can't, you know, give you a great explanation of why their tools would profane the stones for the altar. Um, but my, my best guess is that God wants to use the stones in which he cut with his hands, the, the very natural rock. Don't use your stones. This is God's altar. We're going to use God's cut of stones. Do not try to use your tools to cut this stone. Yeah, one other thought about the stones being cut, it's just interesting in my mind that humans often try to perfect that which God has already made good, right? And so by humans doing what is right in their own eyes, by cutting the stone to their uh, sort of specifications of aesthetic beauty, they're not adding to what God has already made good. Humans are corrupt. We have already seen that they've decided to do what is right in their own eyes. And that which is right in humans' eyes is generally not that which is right in God's eyes, unless they're following godly wisdom. And so it's just another reminder. God is wise. Humans aren't, even when they just try to do something like cut stones for an altar. Uh, moving in now to chapter 21, we're going to talk about some more law code now. So I'll go ahead and read and we'll continue on with our live commentary sort of fashion. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, that wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. Let's go ahead and pause right there, real quick, and we can kind of talk about this because there's a lot in this section, and we'll have some big concepts that'll go throughout the rest of 21 that can be kind of settled in this first section. And so this first section brings out the idea of Hebrew slaves. And right away, our tendencies, particularly as 21st century Americans, is to bristle at this word, slave. 
and you go, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about slaves? Why are you talking about doing anything with slaves? You know, slaves are bad. Slaves are evil. And, and yes, we want to reiterate the fact that, yes, Corey and I both believe that. However, what the scriptures are talking about here is not what we as 21st century Americans are conceiving of as slaves, but instead something a bit different. Notice how in the text we see that these are Hebrew slaves. So these are slaves that are among the people of the covenant. And so that is really important in this first section, because if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. And so we're going to pick up on this idea later in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We talk about things like Jubilee years and stuff like that, where basically God makes it so that no matter what happens by human rule, that there's always kind of a reset period so that things can go back in a sense to the, the time or the state in which God has already created them. And so a Hebrew can sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off a debt. We're going to see that later on in the text and things like this. But on the seventh year, that slave is still to be set free. It's not like, say, American slavery in the past where they owned them for life and it was property. But instead, this is kind of a service that Hebrews can sell themselves into in order to do things like pay off a debt. But nevertheless, it's sacred such that on the seventh year, the person can't keep them forever. They're, they're free no matter what. And so it kind of talks about some other weird stuff. And it gets into some different categories for ownership than we as Americans might have, where it talks about if a master gives his slave a wife and she bears sons or daughters for the Hebrew slave, that those don't belong to the Hebrew slave. And that's kind of an interesting category for us. We would go, well, if this guy has a wife and those kids are his blood, then they belong to him. And so it's some puzzling things that are going on here, for sure. Corey, do you have any other thoughts on, on this first section? No. So again, it's just going to rub us the wrong way at first read through when we hit laws like this. But we have to remember, God isn't giving like his perfect ideal of laws. He's giving laws that are actually really, really dumbed down to help his really sinful people, which is amazing because as we read through the Bible, we realize that nobody can even attain to this set of laws. No one could be perfect by this set of laws, which brings things way down, like people owning slaves. God is essentially saying, I will work with you and what's going on in your culture. I'm going to separate you from other cultures, and I'm going to do a lot to separate you, but some things we're going to get to later. <laughs> so this idea of having slaves and the fact that he let slaves go, as Dylan said, like that's a huge act of love that God would give a lot about slaves and to slave owners. And so... As we start to see the other laws and always, as we start to look at the other cultures that are around them, as the story goes on, we're going to see like, man, what a good God. And we don't even need to look forward. We can actually look back to the Exodus just earlier in this book. We had this group of people, these Hebrew slaves who were slaves for over 400 years. There was no year of Jubilee for them because otherwise it would have been over hundreds of years ago. So 
God is immensely gracious. And we'll, we'll have to adjust our way of grading God's laws. But let's keep that in mind. What he's doing to the people of this culture is revolutionary in love and grace. And so let, let's continue on through it in verse 7 now of chapter 21. It says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And so, again, we're in a situation with slaves where we're in not the best situation. Again, God's ideal is there would be no slaves and there'd be no reason for a man to sell his daughter as a slave. Like things would be good. Like you would have everything you'd need. You would much rather marry off your daughter than sell her, right? The only reason you would need to do that if you are in some serious need for money or capital or whatever it may be, right? And so once this man sells his daughter, that daughter is thus giving rights to be protected. Because again, what other God or what other law code around the world back these thousands of years ago cared about women and their rights as they're being sold off? Whether slaves in general, but especially a woman slave being sold for the sake of like a, a pseudo kind of marriage. Well, man, if you're going to buy a woman as a slave, you need to treat her in these ways. Give her this amount of dignity because this woman, just like any person is made in the image of God, right? And so we're seeing God again, give certain rights. Anything else still into this? Nothing more to that. Let's keep moving on. And so uh, in Verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Okay. But if he did not lie in wait for him, so if he didn't premeditate, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So we have some interesting thoughts on what it means to murder. So we have some distinctions being made. If you strike a man uh, so that he dies, you shall be put to death. But if you didn't do it and premeditate, you can flee to a specific place. We don't know where that is yet. We did actually touch on this in the podcast a little bit in Genesis, actually. But uh, later on, we'll see this idea of these sanctuary cities that you can actually flee to to escape the avenger of blood. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, meaning that it was premeditated, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So he is going to be completely removed from the presence of the people, killed from God, everything. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him, they'll all be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Hmm, it's a scary one for today's world. 
Verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, so he's injured. Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of time and shall have him thoroughly healed. And so basically what that's saying is if you bonk someone on the head and they don't die, but they get injured to the point where they're in bed rest, that you don't have to be dead or put to death because of that. Um, you only have to pay for the loss of time. So there's a value there put on the person's lost time, even though they didn't die. When a man strikes a slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Hmm. Interesting one. Come back to that one in a second. We'll continue finishing up the chapter here. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So here we find the... Law of Les Talions kind of iterated here in the text. That's uh, this idea of, you know, eye for eye. You hear that constantly talked about in today's world. Verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. So if a owner of the slave hurts his slave and destroys, say, his eye, that slave is now being allowed to go free. That person has no claim over it because of the injury he imposed on his slave. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and his flesh shall be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. If the ox has an accustomed, so it consistently has gored people in the past and his owner has been warned and not kept it in. Uh, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death because the owner knew that obviously you probably should have put that ox away that kept killing people. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to the master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. All right, so we covered a lot there. We are going to be going fairly quickly through this, but uh, as is uh, per this episode, the live commentary. Corey, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, tons of thoughts. Um, I want to go back to that verse that Dylan kind of slowed down on. That was uh, Exodus 21, verse 24. And I guess right before that, verse 23, where it talks about life for life and eye for eye. And this is a good summary of all these little laws that were given. And it might sound really harsh, right? God gives very clear instructions to really minute details and with very severe consequences. You might think like, man, God, like, what the heck? Where's, where's the grace in that? But the idea to be taken away is not so much with the consequences that are so tough. I mean, that's important, but you have to think about why these severe consequences is given and you know how to perceive that you know as a person there you have to really think about if this person really made you angry and you want to go and kill them well 
you better be ready to die yourself. If you want to go and get in a fight, if you want to hurt someone, you better be treating that person not any worse than you want to be treated. Or I guess, you know, as Jesus says, says um, you know, this golden rules, we have to love other people. And the golden rules we hear about today is, hey, treat others the way that you want to be treated. And so this is really, you know, stark contrast of, you know, the way we think today. But it's a lot easier to put yourself in that mindset of, oh, like, what kind of consequences do I want? It's not like, oh, do I want to go to jail for a few years if I kill this guy? Maybe good behavior I can get out early. No, it's do I want my life to end? Because if I kill that man, it's as good as me being dead. It's as good as killing myself. It is a death sentence. And you have to, you know, think about really extreme situations like that. Also, even down to your donkey, even down to your ox. Think like, well, this ox is so valuable to me. It helps me get so much done. I know it has a problem with goring people. But, you know, God says in his word, like, well, human life is much more important. I better not take the chance. I better keep this ox in. I'll do some extra work, you know, build it a steady stable, do the work to put it away every time so that if I turn my back, it doesn't go out and do something terrible. We need to start valuing people's life kind of like the way that God values human life. And so by these laws, with these really harsh penalties, we will hopefully get the right heart attitude to see what's behind these instructions and say, oh, life is valuable. I should treat people the way that I want to be treated. I'm not going to do or say or think things that I don't want people to do, think, and say about me. And so it's really putting a high value on the other, right? Because so often we want to focus on ourselves. So God says, focus on the other in all these different ways. Um, that Those are my only thoughts. Anything else, Dylan? No, nothing else. Let's keep rolling. Verse 33, when a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then he shall sell the live ox and share its price and the dead beast also shall share the price. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. So again, uh, with the knowing that the ox gores, if your ox gores another ox and you know that it gores other oxes, uh, you got to give your ox over and you got to take the dead one. Moving now into chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found to be uh, breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be no blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or let his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution for the beast in his own field and in his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain 
or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. So to see if that person actually stole his neighbor's property or if not. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any other kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or sheep or any other beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor, is injured, or it dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fees. So we have here a whole bunch of laws that are fairly self-explanatory dealing with this idea of restitution. So what does it mean when... Something happens that seems unjust. How shall justice be dealt in these situations? If you have something that you lend to somebody and it's lost, did that person take it? If yes, then they got to pay for it. If not, then they have to swear an oath. Uh, it's going to be brought before God. God's going to judge between the two, etc. And so we have all of these laws that deal with the same sort of concept. And again, they're all fairly self-explanatory. And so for the sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and leave it there. Corey, do you have anything else to say on these laws? If not, you can keep moving forward. Yeah, let's keep moving forward. And we're in 22, verse 16. It says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So we see something like, when Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped by Shechem, what do we do? Well, surely it's not what Levi and Simeon did to the whole town and people group of Shechem. Continue on. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. And we're going to see some sorcerers and sorceresses come up who are dealt with harshly in the story. You might think, what gives? Well, that gives. Uh, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Okay, I know I'm stopping a lot here, but this is kind of a funny story. My wife is reading the Bible through with a couple of girls, kind of walking them through it. And they got to this passage just the other day. And one of her friends says, well, what does it mean? Like, don't lie with an animal. And she had to be told, like, straight up, like, this is actually like talking about having sex with animals. People do that. And she's like, what? That's disgusting. People are messed up. And so... Again, yes, people are messed up. And so if you were uh, really innocent of mind, that's what it's talking about here. Continuing on, whoever sacrifices to any god other than Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, 
and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Okay, a really big section there. Uh, we got uh, into chapter 23 there a little bit. But again, it's all having to do with justice and God's ideals of justice are there shouldn't be any false charges. There shouldn't be any bribery. You shouldn't treat people differently based on their, you know, socioeconomic status. Essentially, justice should be blind to those superficial things. Justice should be, well, we're getting a picture of what justice is like to God. Justice weighs the heart in those actions. So let's not be false in our report. And if we see our enemy who is trapped underneath this donkey, let us help him. But we should do good to all people because that's what we would want done to us. We should want justice done to us in the same way as we should do justice to others. And one last thought, I want to look at the last line I read, which is 23 verse 9, where it talks about oppressing a sojourner, which was also talked about a bit up in chapter 2, verse 21. But don't oppress a sojourner, for you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And to get into the Hebrew here a little bit, um, the Hebrew word for sojourner is Gar or Ger, depending on the vowel marking. And so if you're going to say the sojourner, the is simply a ha put in front of a word. So the sojourner 
would sound something like Hagar, or, you know, we're used to saying this name in Genesis, Hagar. So when we saw Hagar in Genesis, Sarah and Abraham's servant, she was a sojourner from the land of Egypt. So this has a bunch of ties to the people of Israel being sojourners in Egypt, like it clearly says in the text here. But also, we have to remember that sojourner who was from the land of Egypt, who suffered under not very kind masters, right? And so God cares a whole lot about his sojourners. And we saw how Abraham and Sarah really did that wrong. We saw how the Israelites were really mistreated by the Egyptians. So God doesn't want sojourners to be treated in that way. There's a sojourner coming through your land. You better treat that sojourner well, just as you had once wished to be treated well as a sojourner. Dylan, any other thoughts on this section? No, not on the sojourner section or the justice section. So let's keep moving on into verse 10 of chapter 25. Moving on to laws about the Sabbath and festivals. So it says in verse 10, For six years you shall sow your land and gather it in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie follow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. So that basically everything is getting a part of what the land produces here. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant, woman, and the alien may be refreshed. And so what we get here is really kind of contrary to, if you're in America, your American capitalistic ideals, where in our world, I mean, this goes as far as all of the West, really. Uh, if you own something, it's yours, you know, it's it's yours to do with what you want. That's kind of the typical American mindset anyway. And so here we see something completely contrary where God is saying that everything is, in a sense, all of this stuff is, is sacred. God cares about all of this stuff. Um, your stuff, even though it is your stuff, isn't just your stuff. It's actually ultimately God's stuff. And there's a natural order to everything. So even if you have an orchard, you're not entitled to everything that that orchard produces. You're entitled to what you need from that orchard. And then after that point, allow other people to go and gather from it. Allow the animals even to go and gather from it. That just doesn't follow with our current mindset. It also really emphasizes this idea of rest, not only for yourself, but for all of that which is involved in your normal work, which includes, say, your ox and your animals. You know, it's not just rest for you, but make everything else work, make your slaves work, make your animals work on the seventh day as well. But let everything rest, including the animals, the land, all of it. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of, the, of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. This is verse 13, now into 14. Three times in the year, you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it, you came out of Egypt. So this is a reference back to Passover, which we just went over a few podcasts ago. None shall appear before me empty handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor 
of what you sow in the fields. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your meals appear before Yahweh your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And so we see here a bunch of laws concerning a bunch of feasts. And the only thing really for the sake of time that I want to say on this topic is remember back to Genesis 1. Remember when light was created first before even the sun was created? It was kind of a puzzlement to us when we first started going through that passage. But remember the reason stated in Genesis 1 when the sun and moon were actually created. What was the reason for their creation? It wasn't to produce light as light was already created. Instead, the text tells us that it was done in order that people may be able to observe our English translations say seasons, but it's it's so that they can observe God's appointed times and festivals. And so this here is another reference to said festivals. Basically, all of these are put together in such a way as to set the people apart for God and allow for them to remember and worship Yahweh, to know who Yahweh is and to pass these stories on to their youth. That's what the feasts and the festivals are there for. Corey, anything else? No, that's great. Funny little story about that funny little laws. It's kind of tagged in on the end there. You should not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, in Israel today, you can't get a cheeseburger in a lot of places because they take that idea of like the meat and then the cheese, which is made with the cow. Like, no, it doesn't mix. It might be close to breaking this command. So you could have cheese, you can have a burger, but can't bring them together. So a total uh, misunderstanding of these rules because it's not about the letter of the law. As we're seeing, as we're looking into these, is wow, God wants to be with his people. So he's making them party. God wants them to be a set apart from their neighbors. And as we're seeing this flow here, we've been talking about what life is going to be like in the lands and how you're going to treat sojourners. And now we're, I just got done talking about Um, these feasts, but also Sabbaths. So when you get to the land, you're going to rest. You're going to allow your land to rest. And this is getting right into the next section, which talks about getting into the promised land. Real quick, before you jump into that, one other thing I wanted to add to your story about the letter of the law versus the heart of the law and the cheeseburger thing is this analogy that I really like. And say you have two children, right? And you are their parent and you have, you know, a son and a daughter and your son goes up and punches his sister. And you say to your son, Hey, don't punch your sister. And so what does your son do? Invariably he goes up and kicks her, right? Did he follow what you said to do? Well, technically, yes. You know, he didn't punch his sister again. He kicked her. So he followed the letter of your law. But did he actually do what you said to do? No, you would still punish your son because the ultimate point of what you were trying to communicate to your kid when you said don't hit your sister is be nice to your sister. Don't hurt your sister. 
And so by kicking her, he broke that. And so again, that's really what we're seeing. Like Corey just pointed out with the letter of the law versus the heart of the law. God is doing something beyond simply the mere instruction value of each word to a point where he's actually creating for them a means by which these people reading these laws and us too can gain godly wisdom and insight into how to treat one another. Yeah, great insert. Well timed. Um, But now we're going to finish up the rest of chapter 23 and it starts in verse 20. And so we just uh, finished a bunch of commands and now we're getting kind of back into um, a telling of a story or it's getting uh, back into a conversation. And so God's saying, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to obey him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and I bought them out, You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve Yahweh your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I'll make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets. I think those came late. I think those came this year to America. Anyways, I'll send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I'll drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the lands. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the lands into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Man, what a, what a cool section, a promise of God to send an angel to be with his people to take out all of these nations whom God promised to uh, take out and give them the land. God has been traveling with his people, going before them and behind them in the case when he was protecting their back against the Egyptians when they're cornered at the Red Sea. So God has been taking them all this way, but now he says, I'm going to send an angel. The Hebrew word, For this, this idea or this phrase where he says, my angel in verse 23, it's in Hebrew, Malachi. There's actually a whole book with this title. This is the book of Malachi. So Malachi literally just means my messenger. And so a messenger, anytime we see angel, it literally means messenger. So it gets translated based on the context. And here, it's not just some messenger boy, some human, it's some being, and this being is said to have Yahweh's name in him. 
So really interesting. Again, we, we talked about the altars earlier where um, you put this altar in the place where Yahweh's name will be remembered. And now Yahweh is sending a messenger before the people, but yet Yahweh is putting his name into this messenger that will lead them out. So really interesting to, to think about that God's not going with them. He's sending someone before them. And we'll pick up on this idea more in uh, 10 chapters from now, but that should kind of stick with us. But God is going before his people by ways of his messenger, and he's going to take out all these people. He's going to do the dirty work of sending these people into confusion. You know, think like Jericho. All they had to do was walk around and yell and shout, and then the walls came tumbling down. Or in other battles, like God just made them turn against themselves because they had no idea what was going on. So these things that God has promised, he has done. And as the people do good in the land, God's going to take away sickness. Women aren't even going to miscarry or be barren. So things are going to be really well as they go into the land and follow God. And then it ends with that this idea that you're not going to make covenants with them as well or covenants with any other of their gods. And that's going to be a really good transition into the next chapter. But Dylan, any other thoughts? No, no other thoughts there. We'll deal again with this concept of the angel uh, that God sends before them when we get to chapter 33. Uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into 24 now. And again, like Corey said, we're back into the story. So if you remember from the recap or last week's episode, last thing that we have in the story is the 10 words. And, and I guess preceding that is this idea that the Israelites failed to go up the mountain. And because of this, they've assigned Moses now as mediator between them and God. Moses goes up the mountain. The people don't. He brings down with him the 10 words and all these codes that we went through today. So picking up at 24, then he said to Moses, that is God, come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to Yahweh, but the other shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So, again, we went from pre-Exodus 19 going, okay, mini goal, what we're expecting, people to get to Sinai, and people to go up Sinai, and people to worship God. We get to 19, and again, we get this covenant idea and language being expressed by God saying, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. And we go, yes, this is what we're expecting. And then the people don't go up. And now in 24, again, Moses alone is going to come near to the Lord, but others shall not come near to the Lord. So we went from expecting everybody to go up before the Lord, having that be the ideal, the command even, to only Moses is allowed up because the people have failed. Everybody else cannot come up. So Moses came up uh, and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all of the words of Yahweh. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to Yahweh. 
And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. And now this is really important. So we've had a bunch of covenant language up until this point, but now we're getting the covenant confirmed, the covenant cut, as is uh, the language really used in the text. And there's not enough time today to really delve into this idea of what exactly a covenant is. So maybe we'll cover that at the beginning of next episode, because I think that that's going to be really important moving forward and even looking back in the previous episodes that have dealt with this idea of covenant. But suffice it to say that this covenant is being cut in blood. So verse six, Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood. And this is the bit about it being cut in blood. And he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And interestingly here, uh, if we look back at the covenant with Abraham, where God cut a covenant with Abraham as well, we did talk about covenant a little bit then. The interesting thing about that covenant was that God actually puts Abraham to sleep the first time, right? And so Abraham goes to sleep and then God himself as uh, you know, a melting pot torch pass through the pieces of animals that are divided to be the blood through which the covenant is cut. Basically, God's saying, I will keep this covenant. I'm ratifying this covenant with myself and I'm going to be the one to keep it. Now we have kind of a different image here. We have Moses going before the people and sprinkling the blood on them and them saying, we will do that which Yahweh has spoken. And if you know the story, you know that they don't. And so this covenant has blessings. If you keep the covenant, this is what you'll get. And curses. If you don't keep the covenant, this is what you'll get. And so that is the stipulation now that Israel agrees to. And this isn't a covenant that's being kept purely by God. This is a two-way covenant between God as God and Israel as the lesser vassal. But they need to abide by this covenant now if they are going to get the blessings that are going to be brought out. Then Moses and Aaron Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw God, the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. Some of the translations say lapis lazuli, uh, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua and Moses went up with him uh, into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And, he, and on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. A lot going on there. Corey, other thoughts? Really cool scene of God establish, establishing or 
uh, confirming this covenant. And again, just kind of laughable. The people again say, yeah, we'll do it. We'll do all that Yahweh has spoken. We, we already heard that one or two times from the people when hearing from God or from Moses. It's like, ah, oh, no, this isn't good. Uh, they're probably not going to do it. But we're hoping, hoping they will. Then we have this really interesting picture as, you know, those few people get to come up the mountain. They explain what it looked like. They saw the God of Israel. There is under his feet like a pavement of sapphire stone. So again, like this, this picture into a heavenly reality, right? And so God had shown himself in some way. Because we, we know that God is spirit. John chapter 4 teaches us that, if we didn't know already. But John chapter 4, verses like 23 to 25. Let us know that God is spirit. And so no one has really seen God in his true form because we don't have the eyes to see him. So he appeared to these people in this way where they see this pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Right? And they beheld God and ate and drank. So what a cool moment. Everyone was supposed to have this moment with Yahweh on the mountain to see God, to behold God, to eat and drink, very much like the Garden of Eden. But yet the people missed out on it and they're being punished for it and they're getting a bunch of commands. While the commands are really good commands, um, it's such a lesser form of what God was wanting to show. We get a little picture of how God wanted to be with his people. We are just kind of left wondering, man, what was it like? What could it have been like? And we're given this beautiful picture of what the rest of the camp had missed out on. And that's uh, the big idea we're ending on here of God with his people. But Moses is you know, going to be up on the mountain consumed by the glory of Yahweh over it. And it's going to be up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And so there's going to be more laws to come, more instructions. Next week, we're going to get into talking about the laws for the sanctuary, all the, the makings that go into the tabernacle. And I, I'm super stoked for that. But any other thoughts on this week and the covenant being confirmed, Dylan, before we Shalom, Hadiyoset. <laughs> um, honestly, I think that that is a great place to wrap up. Like I said, maybe next week at the beginning of the podcast, we can talk a little bit about what a covenant is, and that'll really push back into things that we've already covered. It'll go forward as we're going to see more covenants cut as we proceed through the scriptures. So we'll go ahead and leave it off with uh, with Corey's thought there. Guys, thank you for tuning into the podcast yet again this week. If you guys do enjoy this podcast, if you're blessed by it, there's a number of ways that you can help it out to keep it going, to help it bless other people. Best way that you can do that probably is to pray for the podcast for sure. Uh, also, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review for it on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, that is the number one podcast portal. It does help it get out so that other people can see it. We are up to eight reviews, which is awesome. The more, the merrier. It really helps with the algorithm. Other than that, if you would like to support 
the show. We do pay for it completely out of our own pockets. You can do that by going to the website, thebibleisastory.com and clicking on donate. That'll take you to the Patreon page, which is a crowdfunding platform for episodic content. I'm going to be putting together a PayPal uh, soon as well. So watch out for that if you'd like to donate that way to help the podcast and keep it going. Also, if you would like to communicate with us, ask questions, tell us we're heathens, anything like like that, email address is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. And finally, like I already alluded to, the website is thebibleisastory.com. And there you'll find the blog as well as the podcast and other resources. Check us out there or on the Facebook page. Guys, thank you again for tuning into the show today. As always... Hello, adios. Hello, adios. Long pause there, waiting for it. Staring off into space.